listening to GradCast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller, and I'm here today with my co-host, Laura Benazbina, and we are interviewing Ben Gladstone. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Hi there. I'm doing great. How are you guys? We are pretty fantastic. We're really excited to have you on the show today. I'm wondering if you can start to kick things off just to tell us a little bit about you, your background, your research, and all that good stuff. Absolutely. So I'm in the second year of my master's in history here at Western. I also did my undergrad in history here. Uh, I've been around for a while. Um, I came here after completing high school in Israel. So I lived there for about three years um, between 2012 and 2015, uh, which got me really interested in the origins of the conflicts there and throughout the Middle East. Uh, what this has led me to is looking into the period right after World War I uh, and the system called the Mandate System, which was created to deal with the colonies of the defeated powers, that being mainly Germany and the Ottoman Empire, uh, after that war. And to look into the origins of this system and specifically the conclusions that I've come to is that this system was created largely as a result of American influence and especially that of President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and his ideas in turning colonialism towards a direction more interested in self-determination and the creation of independent states than had been previously. So could you explain um, a little bit about what an independent state is? Uh, I mean, I can try. Uh, this is always, you know, a, a debatable term, right? That independence can be taken a few different ways, but essentially, the, at this time, we're talking about a time frame here, you know, World War I, 1914 to 1918, the peace conference after was mostly in 1919. So what we're talking about here is a world in which the British Empire is firmly the strongest in the world, with France and the United States sort of close behind. Um, well, we may today think of the United States as something of an imperial power. At the time, that wasn't the impression time most people viewed the United States as the quintessentially anti-imperial power. Um, they did have sort of one major colony in the Philippines, but America had approached the issue of colonialism very differently uh, with the idea of creating, as we say, independent states. Um, to my mind, their idea of independence was the way that they treated Latin America at the time, where the countries govern themselves. They have their own you know, free and fair elections, elect their own governments. But the United States is more than prepared to intervene economically or militarily in some cases if those governments aren't basically supporting American business interests. Um, so it's this understanding of independence where a country is independent as long as it's cooperating with the United States or the other powers. Cool. So now I'm wondering how do you like where do you begin? Like once you have your research question, you want to understand the conflict there. So where did you start or how did you approach like the the question that you had? Right. So I uh, I had to go back a ways. So I actually start uh, in the 1860s is the sort of earliest thing. One thing to understand about President Woodrow Wilson is uh, he was the first southerner to be elected president after uh, the Civil War. And he grew up in a Confederate family in Virginia, um, which he, he did have some very problematic views about segregation, that sort of thing, but that doesn't really come up. 
So I talk about his experience there. This is a guy who experienced a really brutal war as a child. He experienced the occupation of his state by, they were American troops, but they were Northern troops. Uh, so this is a guy who is really fundamentally opposed to warfare, right? And we can understand here that at around the same time, Canada is created under the British North America Act, where the idea, we see this evolution of ideas about colonialism between the British and the Americans, uh, with the British sort of saying that good government is the object of colonialism, uh, found in the BNA Act, sort of peace order and good government. Whereas in the United States, the object of colonial governance, whether it's in the Southern states after the Civil War, in the Western states, or in places like the Philippines and Puerto Rico, is self-government, creation of... Now, that's not self-government of any kind. They only want self-government under a basically American system, a sort of democratic system, um, at least as far as they're concerned. Uh, from there, I sort of go through and look at the way that colonialism changed in the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, looking at the Belgian atrocities in the Congo and how that sort of led the international community to start taking seriously the idea that what one country does in its colonies isn't just their business. The rest of the world has a stake in that too. Um, and from there, I sort of expand into understanding the American relationship with Latin America, into understanding that America, whereas, you know, Britain takes over India and governs it themselves in order to, well, basically to get rich. The Americans have a different approach where they're not going to govern the countries in Latin America, in Panama, Nicaragua, Cuba, all these other places where they send troops in to intervene. They let them govern themselves as long as they're doing so in the interests of American businesses and American military strategy. So is that also considered colonialism? Uh, I would call that neocolonialism. Mm -hmm. in a certain sense. That's a term we hear a lot, uh, especially applied to the Middle East today, where what they want isn't the people. They don't really care to control the territory, they care to control the resources. Um, and how legitimate is it to intervene a country just because you disagree with their business? <laughs> well, right, and th this is it, is that you can't, you know, on, on the one hand, yes, these countries are independent. On the other hand, it, it's not really a sign of respect when you just invade because they elected someone you don't like. Very interesting. So what, uh, like, how was, how were things looking in Israel when, uh, America intervened? Well, so the Americans never directly intervened there. They oh. created this system, uh, well, not alone, but in consultation with the other powers, created this system where the League of Nations would supervise colonialism in these areas. The idea was that eventually, basically, it was most of these areas were given to Britain or France. Small areas were given to Belgium and Japan as well. Um, the idea was, so looking at the Middle East, today's Israel slash Palestine, Jordan and Iraq were given to Britain, Syria and Lebanon were given to France. Um, in these areas, oil as it is today was the main goal. 
They wanted oil to be coming out of these areas. And they also wanted to make sure that they were protecting them, making sure that other powers wouldn't get involved. Um, so what we see here is that the United States will not govern the territories, but they demand a stake in the oil output. Right, so this is reminiscent of the way that they behaved with the Latin American fruit companies, both before and after this period, where we've got you know poor farmers living on the edges of banana plantations, for example, and the United States will intervene against any government that tries to change that. That's where we get the term banana republic from. Um, we see a similar thing happen in the Middle East, where Britain is given control over these areas, Iraq being the biggest oil producer there at that time. And the British find uh, a gentleman by the name of Faisal. He was the son of the Emir of Mecca. He had briefly been the king of Syria until the French kicked him out. The British create a government around him in Iraq, give Iraq its independence in the 1930s while demanding oil. Now, it, this isn't the British government, but British, French, and American companies operating in Iraq to extract the oil. The whole time the British are maintaining air bases and when the government starts acting in ways that the British don't like, they're more than happy to send their planes out to bomb a few people, just to make it clear that the country is independent with certain limitations. Uh, the, the main focus of my research is understanding how it, essentially these American forms of neo-colonialism were exported at the end of World War I and formalized into a new concept of colonialism, uh, which here we'll term neo-colonialism, that is progressively adopted by other nations. Uh, the British are particularly enthusiastic about it, the French less so, but by the end of World War II, we start to see the colonial world coming apart. And it's very quickly replaced by all of these puppet governments that look a lot like the governments America set up in Latin America uh, before and after World War I, and the governments that were set up by the Europeans under American influence after World War I through the mandate system. So can you go back? There was a, um, a term you used or a group called League of Nations. I'm just wondering if you can explain. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, like today's United Nations, the League of Nations was intended to be an international forum to solve problems, right? Try to avoid wars. Uh, after World War I, the idea had been circulating for some time that an organization like this should exist, but it was President Woodrow Wilson who really pushed for it and made it happen. So at the end of the war, the main, one of the main provisions of the Treaty of Versailles, which made peace between Germany and the, uh, the British, French, Americans, et cetera, um, was that they would create this forum. It was based in Geneva, Switzerland. And it was basically a big di diplomatic talking shop where they were supposed to solve the world's problems. Uh, this is an organization that did not have an army of its own. It could make laws, but it couldn't enforce them. Uh, one of the big issues that came up was that the United States, despite having come up with this idea and designed it, never actually joined the League of Nations. So they had a lot of trouble getting decisions through uh, and making anything actually happen. 
And they had a whole section, UN actually still retains this section in part, to deal with territories that they felt couldn't be entrusted to everyone. Um, now, just as a disclaimer, this stuff does get into a lot of, frankly, pretty racist stuff. Uh, just these were the attitudes of colonialists at the time, right? In Britain, France, the United States, and elsewhere, uh, that essentially that non-European people were inferior, right? This was the common conception. So they felt that a territory like modern Namibia, then called Southwest Africa, was not capable of governing itself, not immediately. So they had to entrust a European country to run it for them and to prepare them to govern themselves. And the League of Nations was considered to be the trustee for this, right? That they were gonna watch over and make sure that abuses of the native population weren't gonna happen. So I wonder if this is, I don't know if this is the scope for your research, but does that have changed? <laughs> like, are things different now or we're still seeing the same form of colonialism that they founded on the early 90s? Well, things have changed and they haven't. Uh, so we would never talk about a civilizing mission today the same way that they did back then, right? Mm -hmm. The sort of key section of the League of Nations Covenant, that's the main document equivalent to the UN Charter, um, calls the mandates a sacred trust of civilization. The idea is that, uh, and this, you know, it does connect to these ideas of a white savior complex and the white man's burden, right? The idea was that a white country like Britain or France would arrive in a territory deemed uncivilized like Southwest Africa and would teach them in a very sort of chauvinistic uh, pedagogical sense to act like a civilized country. To start with, I think that we should define why, what was their understanding by civilized, because that is a very important word yeah. that I still don't need, but don't, I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> um, well, any definition is always arbitrary, right? Mm -hmm. But we should understand that at the time when they talk about they talked about levels of civilization and big surprise, the Europeans placed themselves at the top of this hierarchy. Um, sort of slowly going down, there were countries like Japan that they accepted as roughly their equals, not quite, but close. And then they considered say the Arab population of the Middle East to be almost civilized, right? So these were countries that were gonna be independent soon not immediately, but soon. So civilization is for them related with like with a democratic system or? Yeah, democratic systems, it's related with sort of a lack of corruption, mm. um, a lack of violence within the country uh, and all of this. One of the issues that the Europeans faced was that for you know, in the whole 1800s, they had been going around the world telling everyone how much better they were than everyone else. And then after World War One, and you know, World War One was really horrifying in a lot of ways. Most of the world looked and said, how can you tell us that you're better than us when you guys just did that to each other? So this was one of the ways that they justified it was saying, well, it's all about government, right? It's all about having a good government in place. And the only good government is a European government. 
or an American government. And so just in terms of like your research, are you using a specific methodology to map the historical terrain or how are you going about tracing the time period that you're looking at and gathering your data? Um, so I'm not sure that I would be following any sort of set methodology, but mostly what I'm doing is digging through old diplomatic files. Um, I've gotten very lucky this year that most of the files I need are available online. Uh, of course, travel wasn't possible, but most of what I'm doing is looking through, and there are just thousands of these documents available, mostly from the United States and their correspondence with other powers, and following what are they saying? What are their priorities? And you know, diplomacy is all about compromises, right? We're seeing here, the Europeans are compromising with the Americans. They're changing the way that they do things and changing international law fundamentally uh, to placate the Americans. So my research, I suppose, mostly is, I guess you'd call it following the money, right? Trying to follow the decisions and follow those business leaders. Because remember, Colonialism is motivated by money, right? There's not really any other justification for controlling huge areas of the world. It's very expensive. So in place like the Middle East, it's all about that oil for the most part. There are other things, but it's mostly oil. So I've been following diplomatic correspondence and trying to track down what is it that the United States wanted and how is it that they managed to fundamentally change colonialism to get that? So, uh, what point point of your research are you right now? Are you are you think you do you think you're getting close, or you think <laughs> you think it's still like a long road? Or because I feel like for history, you never know the entire truth. Like there are so many factors at play, like that that are part of the decision of. Like it's, it's hard to have the entire context, right? So I'm wondering how many pieces are you putting together or how far you feel like from, from yeah. having an answer? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. With history, the story is just never done, right? Um, there are a number of really excellent books about, out there on similar topics. Uh, so currently I'm on my second of three chapters. I'm working through it. Um, and I, I am hoping to continue this research. I believe there is more here to understanding, essentially understanding America's role in ending colonialism, uh, which is, is funny when I tell people that today, they tend to look at me and go, but America is mostly playing the role of maintaining colonialism, expanding it. But a hundred years ago, that wasn't the case. They actually, when, um, when they sent people into the Middle East as well as some other areas to ask them who would they want to be in charge of their country, they all said the United States, every single one of them. And by huge margins too, because they felt that the Americans would, uh, essentially the Americans would leave when the job was done. But the Americans didn't want it. In fact, the British offered them modern day Tanzania and said, you can have it. The Americans said, we really don't want it. Uh, which is of course crazy to think of today because that's not how we view the Americans. Uh, but at the time that was the conception and you look, America's only sort of real colony that was never connected to them is the Philippines. Um, 
And from the very earliest days after they captured the Philippines in 1899, they were saying, we don't want to keep this. We're going to prepare them to be independent and then they'll be on their own. Again, when I say independence here, I'm talking about it in the same way they saw Latin American independence, right? They're independent with a little asterisk beside it, subject to America wanting things. So did they also have any interventions in Latin America or not really? Like uh, for helping them to get independence, I mean. Uh, they did. So in 1898 and 1899, the United States fought a war with Spain, uh, Spanish-American War. That war was fought, technically at least, to liberate Cuba from Spanish rule. In the process, the Americans also gained a bunch of territory, uh, Puerto Rico being the most prominent, and the Philippines, as well as some islands in the Pacific. Um, Cuba is a good example of what I'm talking about with American intervention and independence, where the Americans go in and create a democracy with, you know, it, it's self-governing, right? There are Cubans in charge of the country, but the United States will do pretty much whatever. They will land troops, they maintain a base there, they still maintain a base in Cuba and Guantanamo Bay to maintain their economic interests, which in Cuba are mostly, I believe, sugar. So they're, and Woodrow Wilson, the president who helped create the system I'm talking about, personally ordered a number of interventions, uh, including in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, and in Panama. Yeah, I guess, you know, what are you, what are you hoping in terms of, you know, what you find and what you, what you're finding now, what are you hoping your research will inform? Is there, you know, specific government policies now that you're hoping your work will inform? Um, it's less about informing government policies, I think, than it is about helping us to understand the origins of some of our conflicts and helping us to understand mm -hmm. that colonialism is, we talk about it a lot, right? Every day in the media, we hear about colonialism and its impact. And understanding the way that it changed and ended in the 20th century, you know, we go from in 1900, most of the world is under the control of a handful of European countries, over to in 2000, those countries have almost no territory, right outside of Europe and understanding the way that we proceed from, you know, red-coated British troops marching around in India towards more subtle forms of neocolonialism where it's corporations are extracting wealth, right? Corporations are going to impoverished nations and paying their people terribly for very hard work. And I'm trying to understand the origins of this system, especially uh, one of the issues I think in the Middle East, especially is that the, the borders are quite arbitrary as they are in many colonial sets. They were drawn for the convenience of Europeans, not based on the locals, right? And we look at Syria today, Iraq today, Lebanon today, Israel, Palestine today. They're, you know, these are places filled with conflict that seems never ending. And this is the time frame when their borders are being drawn, when their governments are being built, 
and when foreign companies are gaining those footholds to extract oil. And I think that understanding this process can help policymakers to understand the nature of the issues in the Middle East, as well as in parts of Africa and the Pacific, and that maybe understanding the origins of the problems can help find easier solutions or better solutions too. Is there anything that you see countries doing to ensure that these, these foreign companies are not gaining a foothold? Uh, no, they're, they're actually working very hard to make sure these companies keep their foothold. One of the issues for a country like Iraq is the state has very little capacity and it needs money, right? Um, you have to be able to pay your police and your soldiers and keep your government running. And the only way for them to get that money is royalties from oil companies. So one of the big issues and one of the things that we see in the Middle East is that these companies will destabilize a country in order to maintain their economic authority there, right? They, you know, you, you look at the big oil companies in the Middle East, they don't depend on government troops to protect their oil wells. They hire their own mercenaries, right? They bring in private military uh, contractors. So I think that in this time frame is the transition, right? Where the British govern Iraq and let companies like British Petroleum in. The Americans had Standard Oil coming, among others, and they've never really left. Their positions are entrenched. You know, Iraqi regimes, they come and go. And the Americans, they intervened there twice, but mainly in 2003, they toppled the government. But nothing was ever done to harm American interests, corporate interests in those oil deposits, right? So I think one of the, the things that I'm hoping my research helps to highlight is this transition from government-run colonial actions towards a more subtle corporate version where they're still getting their economic benefits, you know, gaining access to resources and stuff without having to bear the burden of governing this territory or being responsible for what happens there. So it's a super easy position for them because they get the, all the money, but they don't really need to actually intervene and make their world like, or like the people in the country live, to live better. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think this is an American methodology, right? You know, the United States never wanted to govern Latin America. They want Latin America to govern itself in ways that benefit the United States. And I think that this period and this system, the mandate system represents this concept that it's not acceptable to capture a territory and to keep it, right? The territories do belong to the people who live there fundamentally. And we might think of this uh, a really progressive idea. Uh, and at the time it was a really progressive idea but it's important to understand that this isn't, it is progressive, but it's not progressive in the sense that the Americans just want what's best for everybody. They have their own method of colonialism that allows them to take this moral stance. I think that we need to wrap up. So do you have any last question, Elizabeth? 
No, this was very informative. I've learned a lot of new terms and I've had, uh, we've had a great lesson back going back in time and time travel. Um, and this was really important and I think has a lot of implications for where we are in the world today. So thank you so much, um, Ben, for being here with us tonight. So you've been listening to GradCast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Elizabeth Moeller and I've been your host. I'm joined by Laura Manasbina, my co-host, and we've had the privilege today to speak with Ben Gladstone. If you would like to get in touch with us, please feel free to do that. Do so. You can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can find us on the web at gradcastradio. This podcast and all our podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also look us up on YouTube for select episodes. Thank you for listening and have a good night.